comes the money. Here we go. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It's the uh, where you get the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately crave. And I could use a consensus right now. Things are pretty crazy. It is crazy. Imagine if money really could talk what it would be saying about <laughs> oh, this week in the like markets. S- stop it, probably. I mean, like, we're off 6%. Stop. <laughs> yeah, like, what are you doing to me, guys? Like, this is too much. Feels like whiplash out there. Yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, a lot of journalists that I know have talked about how insane it is to try and come up with a consistent characterization for the markets. Um, you know, because, like, on the one hand, you have, like, you know, a 6% off day. And then on the other hand, you have the former CEO of Enron setting up like an energy trading platform, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's some, there's some wackiness going on out there. Um, it's hard. I, I don't think anybody's doing a good job of explaining what's going on, except for the people who say that these public equities markets, first of all, went so high because there were no other good alternatives, as in yeah. you either put your money in the public markets or you just, you know, you're basically wasting any opportunity to make any money anywhere else. Um, but beyond that argument, I don't see a lot of good arguments for why we've seen the big ramp and now are experiencing some more downside volatility. Yeah. I mean, like one of the the crazy bubble indicators out there and like I, you know, I use the term bubble with like seven asterisks. I'm not calling a bubble. I'm just saying one of the indicators of froth. Um, the social capital has a SPAC out there, like a special purpose acquisition company. Mm. Um, so they floated this thing and the purpose is to like buy some company to be defined in the future, uh, trades IPOB, uh, and it's trading at a 10% premium to its cash. Uh, so the idea is that these guys, whatever these guys are able to buy is going to instantly be worth 10% more, uh, <laughs> than the cash that they pay for it. Jeez. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. Well, that was like hurt the big hurts ramp up. It's like in bankruptcy and they were going to like raise an extra billion dollars in equity, um, was just, you know, th- these are like the little signs that things aren't, aren't looking so hot. And oh, by the way, we're kind of entering another, um, tick up for a lot of states on the COVID. So it seems like the market's reacting to COVID, to be honest. Like when the news is re- reasonable, it goes up like crazy. When the news is bad, it goes down like crazy. Um, that does feel like probably a, a good explanation for what we see. Yeah. Well, and we've got this, this uh, you know, whatever it takes kind of situation coming out of the Fed now. I mean, like, I want, I mean, you know, I have a friend whose partner uh, makes YouTube videos of like technical analysis and that like that partner is up like 400% in the last three months <laughs> and is like the ultimate short-term investor. <laughs> like, but you know, I mean, you can't do that if you're like a big long-term investor, right? Like how the heck are these people like dealing with a situation where like everyone's nephew is like smoking the indices <laughs> And wouldn't it be amazing (laughs) if we came up with some baloney technical analysis that we put into a YouTube that was like the, you know, the alchemy that most technical analysis is? We came up with the free money elixir. Oh my uh, gosh. Related to picking stocks. And we would probably be just as good as anybody doing like true technical analysis. No offense (laughs) to the the technical analysis people. I guess some offense, but it's pretty, um, yeah, it's a little bit like magic, right? Yeah. It seems legit, but there's there's something behind it. 
It's, I mean, it's like, I, I got, I got into it before fundamentals, TBH, like the, it yeah. was what, you know, but it, that's just because it's like reading rune stones or like tea leaves or something. Yeah. Um, like literally you're <laughs> reading tea leaves and you're like, okay, today's the day I'm buying. Yeah. It's, it's uh, my witchy phase. Um, exactly. you know, <laughs> but like, I wonder if you're like, you know, so let's say you're an actual long-term investor. Yeah. And you, you know, don't do technical analysis, right? Yeah, like maybe like you have your niece read read the tea leaves for you on the side or something like that. Um, but yeah, what do you do? It's a, I mean, it's an amazing time to be a long term investor. I mean, I think if you um, if you look at the way these funds are designed, they are designed to take advantage of moments like this uh, through something we call rebalancing, disciplined rebalancing, where we set like these target allocations to different asset classes. And as those um, asset classes like breach different thresholds, like my public equities allocation goes too high, I'm supposed to kind of rebalance and you don't have to rebalance to the, you know, the average allocation, you can rebalance to the kind of edges or, um, you know, the limits. But the point is, you know, as you're breaching these thresholds, you're selling high um, and you're buying the other asset class that is underpriced and you're kind of getting back to these uh, central long-term uh, strategic asset allocation targets. And and just doing that in a disciplined way makes you counter-cyclical yep. and makes you often a better performer. But the reality is that implies that you have a couple of really good things going for you. First, you have a board who can kind of hold the line and not lose their SHIT in the midst of a crisis. And you have a staff that can kind of see through and maintain the strategy. The staff part, you have to have kind of um, really sophisticated portfolio tools. Like you have to know where your portfolio is today like what we would call GPS, portfolio GPS. What do we hold? What are the prices of those things? What are the risks in, inherent in those products? Can I get liquid? You know, if we can get the GPS of our portfolio and we can start to think about things like what are my unfunded commitments? What are my cash needs? We can rebalance in ways that are really smart. So that's the first thing on the staff side. The second thing in terms of good governance you need a board that like understands that their job is long-term strategy and like the worst thing they can do for the fund is to jump in here and say, oh gosh, we should be getting into cash, you know, or we Yeah, should, like market we, timing advice, like, you know. Exactly. Trying we to talked show about off. that in a prior in a prior episode, how hard it is to to time the markets. It's almost impossible. Yeah. And so Especially when you see like, boards being like, hey, we got to get cash. This is catastrophic, you know, um, this is a recipe for disaster. And and so part of the reason you see it happening goes back to the staff. Like, did they understand the liquidity needs of the fund? Had they run the scenarios and, and kind of talked to the board about what certain scenarios would mean in terms of drawdowns? You know, if you have all these um, unfunded commitments, like, and those commitments start coming due, these crises can kind of reveal all these things that have not been managed properly. Yeah, and like then the last thing, a long-term investor yeah. until that happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. Like, we're all crazy long-term until we need to get cash to meet some capital call, and then we're like desperate for liquidity. <laughs> um, and then the final thing is leadership. Like we. Some of my colleagues at Oxford have written entire papers on like how leadership is the single most important thing for governance because the CEO of a pension plan is managing the stakeholders. They're setting, you know, the kind of, they're not technically setting the agenda for the board. I guess that would be the chairperson, but they're managing up 
They're making yeah. sure the board isn't, you know, doing silly things and they're keeping them educated and apprised of all the things going on. And at the same time, the CEO is lobbying the board to make sure the staff is resourced and can kind of manage through crises with that portfolio GPS I was talking about. And so um, leadership is is really the critical piece here. And I imagine strong leaders are probably feeling like they're, um, they're going to crush it through this crisis. And leaders that haven't been empowered or kind of are being second-guessed by the board aren't feeling too great right now. Yeah, but like, I mean, that's the kind of thing that like people don't usually talk about. You know, I mean, like, to, you know, <laughs> I mean, exactly. who, who's gonna get who's gonna get on a podcast and be like, eh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like we should figure out if we could talk to a giant pension fund CEO and just ask, um, what's it like? Like, how are you managing? You know, those kind of long term strategies in the midst of the short term reactions. I mean, should Do we, we have anybody? The most giant? Uh, uh, the most giant. Fund? I would be Calpers. Should we see if we can call Calpers? Yeah, let's call Marcy. Let's call Marcy. See let's, if she'll uh, pick up. Let's see if she'll pick up. Bum, bum, bum. Pick up, Marcy. Don't ignore us. Hello. Hi. 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 I guess I'm supposed to say yes, I agree to be recorded. But the reason I gave you my personal number is just if this phone has had some problems, I took the case, the outer case off. so. We should be okay, but uh, just in case. Sweet. Well, we hear you great, Marcy. And uh, as we like to tell people, they're quasi-live, which means we could go back and edit things if you say something too crazy that would be on the front page of the New York Times. Um, but we, uh, we, don't normally, we don't normally edit. Um, so the reality here is we've just been chatting a little bit about um, – how volatile the markets have been over the last three months and how pension funds in theory are designed to be these long-term entities that can rebalance around crises and kind of really do a good job. But this period over the last quarter has felt especially kind of difficult. We've got this, you know, global pandemic. We have a national crisis on race going. Somebody told us about a murder hornet craze uh, at some point. How how would you, as CEO of CalPERS, talk about managing the long-term in the midst of so much short-term volatility? Yeah, one of the things I think that we've gotten far better at, and you know, frankly, I think it was many lessons learned from the 08-09 financial crisis, is that you have to plan you have to run that plan through various scenarios so that at the time a crisis hits, and in this case, it was a health crisis, uh, that you're not reacting out of emotion. You're reacting and following a plan generally, right? No plan is going to take into consideration every possible thing that could happen in the markets or every possible thing that could happen in society. But one of the things we uh, feel really good at as we look um, back over the last 12 months or so is we have been leading the board through these drawdown risk mitigation scenarios and really telling them about the tabletop planning that we've been doing. Doing, And you know, we have a new, newer CIO. He's almost uh, at two years now, Ben Meng. And these are uh, strategies that Ben has been bringing into the investment office. So we are long-term investors. 
Uh, we can have our capital play out over decades as long as we're being rewarded appropriately, appropriately for that illiquidity. So we think about long term, we pay out uh, $24 billion out of this $400 billion portfolio every year. So we do have to wow. consider the long term, but we have short term, real short term uh, matters that are always on our minds. And in this case, because we had planned better, our liquidity position was much better uh, in this pandemic than it was in 08 or 09. So we didn't have to sell assets to pay benefits. We didn't have to sell assets to address capital calls. And uh, I think even more importantly, we had liquidity that we could actually take advantage of the market dislocation uh, with opportunities. And uh, we were able uh, to do that. So you know, we have to think long term. We plan on being here for decades, paying benefits out over, uh, you know, a member's lifetime and their beneficiary's lifetimes. Uh, but we have to also find those opportunities short term. But we have short term risk in the system. As you know, we're not uh, well funded. Or, you know, we're roughly 70 percent funded. And when I say we're not well funded, I would love that number to be above 90 percent. And if we were above 90 percent, we could actually take on a little more risk. But we have to carefully manage the risk. Drawdown risk is. Um, is really important for us to consider. We don't want uh, this fund getting close to that 50% marker. It's very difficult for a fund with our scale and size to recover uh, from that number. So we have short-term risks that we have to address and always have in mind as we think about long-term strategies. It's That's awesome that you were so well prepared with so many of those plans, like just in a drawer to dust off. Um, are, are there short-term lessons as well as short-term risks? Like it, what, what sort of aspects of how you run CalPERS might change as a result of the last three months? Yes. So, you know, we were able to get uh, basically almost 2,500 employees working remotely within about two weeks of uh, the pandemic. And the investment office had even better performance uh, around that. So we had been watching, you know, like many others, watching what was happening in China as that, uh, you know, the health crisis was hitting there, what was going on with the markets, what was going on uh, with, uh, you know, the companies there. And so we had uh, started to work uh, within the organization whether that's our information technology department, our procurement department. But essentially, day one of this crisis, the investment office was working remotely with 100% productivity and performance. So they were able to do all the trades. They were able, you know, they were meeting every morning as the, you know, the management committee to figure out, you know, were there short-term opportunities in the market that they wanted to exploit or take advantage of. And, you know, that's something I think that the investment office and the leadership of that office has, uh, has been quite proud of, uh, that there's been no disruption in, um, you know, the work of that uh, particular department. You know, and so, you know, one of the things that we've thought about, which I know there are other companies who have thought about this and have actually implemented, uh, you know, non-brick and mortar, if you will, but remote strategies of having their workforce primarily work um, in remote locations, whether that's from their home or an alternate location. And, you know, we had some management attitudes about whether we thought people could be productive there, whether we thought people could actually get the necessary work done if they were working from home and didn't have that management oversight, if you will. And I think this pandemic has uh, shown us that uh, our productivity numbers are actually higher. And we have, you know, mechanisms that where we can track, you know, how well our teams are doing from a productivity standpoint, whether that's our customer service division, whether that's our actual office, our legal office, our health plan office. So um, that's something we will factor in as we think about workforce planning into the future post-COVID-19. Uh, it is likely that uh, we will have half of our workforce working remotely uh, from this point on. Uh, we don't see a need to carry the cost 
of having, you know, an office or a workstation or having two sets of, you know, a desktop computer, if you will, having a docking station. Um, there will wow. be times that we'll need people to come into the office. Yeah, but uh, we'll have hoteling available for, for those individuals. Huh. And, yeah, so that's uh, – we're excited about that. Our team, I yeah, do a Friday webcast. You didn't even put a date on that, Marcy. You just said – for good from now on forever yeah that's awesome yeah, that's, that is a change yeah it's a significant change you know management has to think about how do you have oversight over performance and productive uh, productivity without have, walking by someone's workstation to make sure that they're working so you know for the people who will have this full-time hmm. remote work uh, you know, we'll have the ability to measure it. We have to be able to measure uh, the yeah. production of the team because we're, you know, we're a trust fund. Every dollar that comes out of that trust fund to pay us, we have to show the value, of, of, you know, to that to that expenditure. So, yeah, you, uh, our team is excited. Um, yeah. Our management probably has to go through some additional uh, training on how to manage a remote workforce, but we're not the only ones doing this. Many companies have done it for, for years. Certainly contact centers have done it for years. That would be you know one of the first places that we would look to do this. We're running it today. Uh, the way that we offer member service is also likely to change uh, pretty dramatically. Uh, we had to shut down all of our regional locations throughout the state of California. And what we have replaced those in-person appointments with is either teleconference or through a WebEx. And you can have, you know, a face-to-face exchange through these virtual meetings that equally replaces, I believe, the exchange that they were have person-to-person. And we think that that's going to change the way that we do service delivery to our 2 million members uh, here in the state of California. That's amazing. In fact, you get, I think you just inspired me. Sloan, I'm going to make the announcement. From now on, the free money podcast is going to be remote. We're yep, also, yep. we're moving yep. <laughs> this podcast to remote work. It's this is market moving news. Where you this heard is, it here uh, first. If you want to reach out to us to talk about that, uh, if that's the news you want to cover, uh, just let us know. Uh, in all seriousness, uh, it's incredible that you can do that. But what it tells me is you're getting very good at measurement metrics um, and how you integrate that into a, you know, an operational context. Cause if people are at home you're, and you're not walking by to say, you know, are you sitting at your desk? You need to build metrics and you need to integrate that into compensation incentives. And, and one of the things we're hearing all over the place right now is um, it's this notion of ESG and sustainable portfolios. And we've seen in the first quarter that that um, approach, that investment approach is more resilient in these times of crisis. They're outperforming. And I guess one of the questions I wanted to ask you, but I'd love to like let you freeform it given that you're doing this, this work from home stuff is how do you get this data that is normally qualitative and based on processes and get it kind of last mile integrated into decision making. You know, it's a, it's a it's moving from a process to a data-driven form of oversight and governance. And I'm just curious if you guys have an internal policy around that or you've developed any thinking. Right. So our entire attitude about the way that we make investment decisions or the way that we make decisions about workforce planning generally is around data. So one of the items that uh, when I first came into CalPERS, one of my commitments to the board when they hired me is that I would create this enterprise performance management system, which would track all of the core processes within CalPERS. It would set targets and thresholds, uh, more like a balanced scorecard that could be reported out to the board on a quarterly basis for all the important core work of the organization. 
So we do that. We're very public about it. We're very transparent about it. It's on our website. Uh, but when we factor that into our thoughts with ESG, we've been a, a real leader, I believe, a best practice leader, if you will, on environmental and social and governance issues. And in particular, on the E and the G, we're still working through some of the framework around uh, the S. But uh, on the environmental side, uh, you know, we have you know, we have uh, really restructured our investment office uh, into what we call our policy, advocacy, and then integration. So the policy and advocacy work really gets ahead of the investment work and the quantitative analysis that goes along with making an investment decision. And data is always going to be you know, our friend in understanding, one, the risks that we're taking, and we believe that CalPERS, and, you know, we're not alone in this, but every institutional investor, we have to find better ways to manage and mitigate the risks, and we cannot do that if we don't have uh, the data. So, I know we want to talk a little bit about, you know, data and transparency as well, but on ESG, you know, we, you know, we've got, we've had some criticism about the way that we've handled ESG. We're getting ready to issue our uh, TCFD report uh, on Monday, June 15th. And that's uh, that's going to say, you know, the carbon, basically the carbon footprint of the entire CalPERS portfolio as it relates to maintaining, you know, uh, some of the agreements that we made through the Paris Accord. Wow, uh, good for you. Yeah. Uh, so we see three key risks to CalPERS. And the first one I know, Ashley, you and I have spoken quite a bit about, but the first risk to the system is getting a 7% return over decades. Yeah. Oh, what? Is that hard? That's hard? <laughs> Just joking. We know it's hard. Yeah, you can ask that. Yeah, Ben would be really happy to talk with you about that as well because, you know, getting, getting a 7% return while you have $24 billion of your assets going out of the portfolio every year to pay benefits. So, you know, it's it's a really strange um, group of uh, expectations that we have, if you will, that it's expected to get the 7% return. We're expected to pay $24 billion. And while we do that, we, we want to find opportunities where, you know, we can do well while we can also uh, do good for the environment and uh, for governance issues. And so... We, um, we, we have seen that some of the lower carbon indices are performing well, as, as you indicate recently, but we also need to look at the long-term macro trends. We're much more concerned about long-term macro than we are short-term shocks in the market and, and, and to the system. Um, but on the policy and advocacy side, uh, we, we believe our voice really does matter and we have to engage on these matters, whether that's, you know, sitting on the SEC investor advisory group around disclosures, whether that, uh, you know, I'm directly involved with the United Nations on their sustainable development goals. I'm also a member of the Net Zero Asset Owner Alliance. Uh, whether that's, uh, you know, helping, you know, us helping to create this car, um, Climate Action 100, which really came from data, right? It came from looking at a portfolio and understanding that about 100 companies in the portfolio were the largest emitters of carbon. And so creating, along with some of the other institutional investors around the world, creating this engagement platform for Climate Action 100, I, I think has really been helpful. It's a private engagement. We're not trying to publicly embarrass these companies. We're trying to really understand, are they mitigating these risks? Are they really working toward this net zero uh, by 2050? And we think that there's been great success there. You can look at some of the the oil companies and some of the independent directors that, that have been appointed onto those companies, we, we feel really good that engagement uh, is actually working. But you'll see us, you know, we'll, you'll see us. I think this is an opportunity with the, with the pandemic uh, to hopefully, you know, expedite and quicken the pace a bit 
on, um, you know, some, some more of these disclosures around human capital, around carbon pricing, around lobbying activities, frankly. You know, we, we need to know, uh, you know, what companies are doing in, in those areas so that we understand the risk. We know how we're deploying our capital and does it make sense to the long term as well as uh, to the short term. That's really interesting. I mean, that like it, you mentioned so much stuff that's happened in the last, you know, 18, 24 months. Um, I, I'm wondering, like, if, you know, a, a framework like the, the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, and it, they, those were born in 2012. Um, do those th- do those still capture adequately the scope of, of need that you see? Are they is that uh, kind of a, um, a defining framework for you? Yeah, I, I think we, we see, you know, as a pension fund, we believe that they're inclusive as long as they also have a framework around uh, sustainable financial markets. Uh, volatility is really troubling for a system and, you know, troubling for CalPERS and that, you know, we're not completely, you know, uh, funded. And so, you know, the, the volatility can be quite difficult. It sends, you know, it sends a shock to the members of the system or the retirees of the system when they see the fund has lost, you know, 40, you know, $40 billion and they start getting concerned about their benefits and, you know, will Cal, you know, survive this uh, current uh, market turmoil. But I, we do believe that they're inclusive, but we, we also want to make sure that uh, there's a lot more focus on sustainable financial markets and getting, you know, this is not something CalPERS can necessarily solve on its own. We need you know, we need all asset owners. We need asset managers. We need governments to get involved in this. The SDGs cannot be realized without governments. Asset owners cannot solve all of the issues related to the SDGs. But uh, number 13 in particular addresses one of the key risks that we have. So, you know, it's the 7% return. It's the employer, our 3,000 participating employers in the system, their ability to continue to pay the contribution rates, whether that's the normal cost of the plan or whether that's the unfunded actuarial liability. And then the third key risk is is related to climate, and mm. you know, right number thirteen is uh, directly spot on with us, and that's the one that we've decided to have more resources allocated uh, to it. Uh, my direct involvement, I, you know, certainly have a team who's helping helping me there as well. But yeah, I, I think they're inclusive, but no one entity can solve the problems within that framework or, you know, get the, the goals that are associated accomplished without a lot of work uh, together uh, between asset owners, asset managers, governments. Um, and, and there has to be some money. <laughs> money has hmm. to flow into this. You can't solve this without funding. And uh, for CalPERS, finding the right funding, the right investment opportunity that meets our expectations around returns has been a real challenge for us, frankly. Yeah, I think in hearing you talk about it, you're, you're um, it's it's like palpable to me that you have to straddle this this line, which is you have a fiduciary duty to meet the seven percent return target, and you have this incredible outflow that's happening um, every year. You have to pay pensions, and there there are sort of broader, longer term issues which we could define as risks that threaten the portfolio. But then there's a whole other series of issues that could end up feeling politicized. And, and for those that aren't as familiar with pension fund governance and how pension funds operate, for a long time, we've designed the boards of directors and the governance to avoid politics um, influencing decision-making in a way that reduces return or doesn't address risk. So we can all make a case about climate change being integrated because of the ability to manage a long-term risk, a hazard, to the assets you're buying. And, and oftentimes, 
um, pension funds will get a huge amount of pressure from politicians to do things that they need to have the courage to say no to in order to maintain that fiduciary duty. Now, you could tell um, there's a long lead up here, Marcy. Um, I know in the last quarter or so, you guys have been getting a huge amount of pressure from a certain um, political party uh, in Washington, D.C. about China. And in fact, there's been pressure placed directly on you uh, and and what I would describe as unfair and unfounded statements made about um, your wonderful American citizen chief investment officer um, about divesting from China and, and moving out of China entirely. And frankly, to me, it feels like that's a politicized request. And so I guess, one, I just wonder what your views are on all that. And two, should we take it now that the politicians that are basically pushing you to divest from China think it's okay now to include politics in decision making? <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, a great question. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, first of all, you know, I, you know, CalPERS legally invests all assets in the portfolio, including the investments, and, and we have a very small exposure to China. But, you know, most of that is done uh, through an index provider, provider, and it's the China A shares that have really come under scrutiny. Um, and in particular for not only CalPERS, but also for the Thrift uh, Savings Plan, the federal plan, the defined contribution plan. And what they were trying to do is add an investment option to their investment lineup that would allow participants to invest in emerging markets, which would include China. And uh, so, you know, the personal attack, I'll, I'll touch on that real quickly, uh, on our CIO, and who is a U.S. citizen, um, it was really troubling and had, you know, quite an impact on him. He is uh, a great investor. He is a kind human being on top of it. And that attack, you know, was really, really difficult uh, for him. And, you know, we, we rallied around him as much as we could and rallying around meaning we needed to get data out there about the way CalPERS invests. And we invest again through these index providers. And in this case, uh, MSCI was really the one who was coming under more scrutiny at the time. But, you know, I've spoken about this, uh, but, and it doesn't feel any different, frankly, than any other demand to divest assets in the portfolio. Uh, we've been before congressional hearings where we've taken, you know, criticism that we've made certain divestments. And then, you know, not caliper, but there's a belief that pension plans have been asking for federal bailouts. And, you know, we've never asked for a federal bailout. So, you know, we would never ask for a federal bailout. But, you know, I've had to address some pretty direct questions, whether, you know, uh, directly with the media or, you know, on a television interview about, you know, California needs to, you know, to wake up that these divestments are hurting your ability to get that 7% return, hurting retirement security. And, uh, but this request to me was, uh, at the beginning, a request to divest. I didn't see it any differently. It is yeah. in my view, but it wasn't any different than any other request that we get from any other entity. It just happened to be, you know, a member of Congress. It happened to be, uh, in, you know, on, on a television channel. And it was yeah. done in a really right, horrific way when you have someone who's really trying. He was hired because he is an investor. He was hired because I needed him to help me get this system into a better place. And we had a 10-year plan. We had a 10-year plan to move this system from this roughly 70% funded to get us in, into that 90th percentile. But even more importantly, to improve the chances that we can hit our 7% return. 
And you know, everything that he's done since he's been here has been about those two uh, priorities, as well as restructuring our investment office to make sure that our investment team also has those opportunities, has the you know the um, the work necessary that and the talent we need to execute on the strategy. So. You know, any divestments uh, that this system has gone through, we, we really have not done divestment uh, in the most recent history over the last three years. I, I'm not a fan of divestment. I'll, I'll be you know, honest about that. I, I think that if we find an asset that uh, no longer fits our strategy, that's an investment decision. It's not a divestment mm. decision, right? But any divestment that has happened historically for CalPERS has to hit or meet the fiduciary duty of, of the trustees, the 13 trustees of the CalPERS board. So every divestment that's done, whether that's tobacco or coal, as two examples, uh, they have to be revisited every five years and they have to go through the diligence to make sure that their fiduciary duty is still met uh, by that uh, not investing in that asset. But you're right. You know, if there's a problem with a particular Chinese company or there's a problem with investing in China, generally, whether that's the A-shares or otherwise, you know, the federal government has the mechanism to address it through the Office of Foreign Asset Control. And we, as, as well as every other pension system, is in compliance with OFAC. And, you know, I've had, I had an opportunity to go and talk to some people, uh, you know, at, at the time that all of this was breaking. And it felt both, you know, personal to the CIO, but also, you know, why is CalPERS, you know, who is so willing to divest here, why aren't they willing to, you know, get out of China here? And just going and explaining this to, you know, a number of the policymakers. And, you know, I think I think we made some headway there. I think uh, they understood, you know, where we're at, uh, that if you want to solve the problem, it's within Congress or the federal government or the administration's ability to solve it. But like them and like us, it, it's, you know, it's hard to say you're going to divest from a single company. We use data. We don't have access to the data, certainly, that the federal government has access to. So we really do believe and take advice and guidance from uh, the foreign asset control. So uh, that's the way we've addressed it. Uh, politics can be really difficult. It, you know, it is a, a tough part of my job is to keep politics out of the portfolio, to insulate the team, insulate the investment office and uh, away from politics driving investment decisions. But that doesn't say we shouldn't be questioned. It doesn't mean that we should not be transparent about the way we're investing and allow people to be critical of the way we're doing it. If we don't have an answer to why we're investing, then you know maybe we should be looking at whether that's the appropriate asset uh, for CalPERS uh, long-term. That's fascinating. I mean, the, I think like as we talk about data, um, you mentioned your work with the SEC and like, I, you know, we hear from time to time about in, quote unquote enhancements and modernization of uh, the sort of disclosure requirements that surround all the companies that you're invest that, uh, that you invest in directly or indirectly, which in effect, uh, you know, sort of reduce them, right? Uh, shorten disclosure requirements, um, you know, take information away from investors. Um, and I've I've heard or been told by by folks that that's what investors want, and I have a hard time imagining an instance in which that's the case. Are are you able to? Yeah, I mean, disclosure is how we determine the risks that uh, we're taking on, and and we have an obligation and a responsibility uh, to do that. Uh, we want more, not less. 
whether that's related to, you know, human capital. I, I sit on a group called the Embankment Project uh, for Inclusive Capitalism, which has a framework for human capital disclosures. And there are many, you know, CEOs of public companies who have joined uh, Epic, and they're starting to disclose those human capital metrics. And that's very helpful to an organization like CalPERS to understand the risks. And again, long-term, decades-long investor, we want to know how these companies are thinking about their business plan, how they're thinking about the way they treat employees, how do you incentivize your employees? We don't want short-term incentives. We want both maybe short-term, but really important, we want long-term incentives that really look to the success of that company long-term, not just quarter by quarter. Uh, we also want to, you know, we've been very active in our proxy voting, uh, very active around CEO compensation, that if you cannot correlate that compensation to the performance of the company, which is what we want, is high performance for that company because that's how we get our return. But if you can't correlate it, you know, we're going to be pretty vocal that we're going to vote against it. If you have an independent director policy and we have an independent director policy and you have a director that's beyond that time frame, we're going to vote against that independent director. We think independence is extremely important yeah. as well. Right. And then, you know, and that's on the governance side. And then we've got the climate related financial disclosures. And we're going to sit at about three and a half uh, versus the two that uh, is ideal. And we're going to have to answer. We're going to need to answer the questions about, well, how do you plan to get from three and a half to two? You know, what's the plan that Cal is going to be putting in place that satisfies this uh, commitment that, that we've made? So we call it accountability. This is just accountability. You know, we, we're very supportive. We try to do private discussions with the companies. I think there was a period of time at CalPERS where you know, we didn't care as much about embarrassing a public company. And that was really unfortunate. That should not have been done. Mm. Uh, right. And we believe that private discussions actually lead to the outcomes that we want. Um, and, and I think we've had some good success with that. Um, but yes, I, you know, we're going to have demands for data. Uh, data is, you know, how the markets run. They're very reactive to information. Uh, we have our own issues around that. Uh, when we talk about investment strategy, it's one of the areas that we can actually have close session about because that information, if given, you know, to other investors, can be exploited at a faster pace probably than we can implement. So we're really careful about our own IP, our own investment strategy until we can make it more public. And, and we will. Once we've executed the strategy, then we'll make that strategy more public. But it, it's really important um, that we have uh, the data. And really, it's completely around risk mitigation, not, not to us. Uh, tell the company how to do the business, but we want to understand how they're conducting their business. We don't have the expertise to run, you know, these public companies, but we do have a need to know how they're looking at it, how they're managing their workforce, how they're managing their business, and you know, are they managing the risks that they have inherent uh, within the line of business that uh, they're operating? Yeah, I, I um, thank you so much for that. I, you know, I, I just I. I wonder if, you know, before we let you go, we could just ask, I mean, I, I have a friend who has come to see you as sort of an icon for, uh, you know, having a, a non-traditional uh, educational background. Um, and I, I think I would be in a fight with them if I didn't ask you what advice you had for other folks uh, with that same sort of um, kind of uh, history. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I, I do appreciate that question. I you know, I my best advice, and I, I think I've spoken a little bit about this internally within the organization as well as outside, but, you know, you have to, I, I call it minding your attitude. You have to be positive, uh, but positive doesn't mean that you're not a critical thinker and you're really challenging yeah. uh, 
right, the norms and the business norms and, and really pushing the boundaries in a way that people can hear you. You have to be optimistic and positive about the future, but uh, you also have to use uh, critical thinking skills to make sure you're understanding where the trouble spots are. So, but you do need to mind your attitude. People won't listen to you if you begin with this, you know, this attitude of, you know, this can't happen or that can't happen without being able to back that up about why you believe that. Um, so people are much more willing to listen to, you know, you know, individuals who put a problem on the table, but then very quickly uh, switch over to, and here's what I believe the solution is. So I was always that kind of person. Be, and then the second would be, you know, be a problem solver. Find the problem people don't want to deal with and solve that problem. And don't solve simply the symptoms of that problem, but, you know, find the analysis and the data and have the patience to really uh, find the root cause of that problem and solve the things that people need to have solved and nobody knows how to do it. So I think that would be number two. And then, you know, the third one, I, I call it follow the leader. I, you know, throughout my 35 years of public service now, if you can believe it, it's gone by really quickly, frankly, because I've enjoyed it. Um, but you need to find leaders who know that it's their job to help make you successful, whether that is leadership, whether that's resources, whether that's tools or coaching for that matter. You know, when I first started out, I was pretty passionate about things. And, you know, I made mistakes. I got a little emotionally wrapped up in maybe my way of doing things. And, you know, just working for people who knew how to coach you through those uh, make or break moments. But, uh, yeah, so I've been doing this now for 35 years. Uh, you know, that said, you know, my education did come through many ways and for many people. Um, I owe a lot of my success to the people who I worked with and for over, over the years. And I've really always been someone who, who reads every day, whether that's professionally, um, or, you know, something I feel like if I don't know something, that's really uncomfortable for me. I, I'm going to go out on my own and broaden that skill set. And when I first uh, became, Probably the best example of that when I first became a member of the Washington State Investment Board and about a year into that became the chair, there were certain things that were being yeah, um, presented to us that I didn't fully understand. But I took responsibility for my own development, took responsibility for my own learning, and reached out to people who I knew had this skill set or this knowledge. And one of them, and I've mentioned uh, this individual's name before, but uh, actually I know you know him, uh, David Nirenberg, who's one of the <clears throat> investment experts on the Washington State Investment Board. And I, you know, and you have to you have to own the fact that you don't know everything. You, you sometimes may feel a little vulnerable, but you can't solve something if you don't acknowledge that you need some help. So, you know, I go to this individual and say, you know, I really need to deepen my investment knowledge. And we did that through a series of uh, books that he recommended to me. And then he would, the evening before the board meetings, we would sit down and talk about the book. And, and it was just really nice. Having people help you and be responsible for your development um, is, uh, I think, something that I've always had access to and have been just so appreciative of. And, you know, it has been a, a bit non-traditional. You know, the traditional way is you graduate high school, you go to college, you, you start working, then maybe you go on for an advanced degree. Um, I, you know, I really didn't have the means at the time. I, I grew up in a, it, uh, in a, in a household that uh, didn't have uh, many financial uh, options. And, you know, I started working right out of high school. I started a family when I was quite young. And those were my priorities. And I was mm -hmm. able to Right, work my way through, you know, these systems, if you will. I started as a typist uh, in 1980, October of 1985, and worked my way through until, you know, my, um, being here at Calpers. 
starting in October of uh, 2016. So, you know, it, I think it's just focus on what people have. Uh, don't try to, you know, check these boxes and, you know, seek to understand what people's backgrounds are, what their relevant skill sets are. You know, if they don't have the traditional, you know, boxes to check, then dig a little deeper. Try to understand what people really can bring to that job. What you're looking for is individuals who have complementary skills. You do not want that, you know, that same that same hire in, you know, all of your team. You want people who have different backgrounds, different skills, uh, different um, abilities, um, and and that's what makes a stronger team. That complementary skill set will help you to avoid big mistakes. And that's uh, that tends to be what I focus on as I became a, a leader of teams. Um, you know, a few years into my career, it was something that I I always kept with me. My job is to develop the team. My job is to make sure they're successful. If they're successful, I am successful automatically. Marcy, that was awesome. I mean, first of all, that's just an incredible, inspiring story. Um, but in addition, um, I think just hearing, you know, your, your trajectory through to now has just been, has just been fantastic. And I feel like the first time you and I met, it was actually an educational event where you were the, you were the chair of the Washington state investment board. And I was one of the people showing up to try to teach you guys something, but in the end, we probably learned more from you guys (laughs) than you learned from us, uh, because you're the ones actually doing it. And, and, you know, the tip of the spear on good governance. And so look, your, your candor here has just been awesome and we just really appreciate it. And, you know, we always try to like make the world of pension funds approachable and fun to people who don't know it. Our dream is that people who listen to this will want to go work for pension funds. And, and I feel like you've just kind of nailed it, you know, like I, first of all, I didn't know you were a typist. It's a job that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but how far you've come and, and we, we're just delighted for it. So I'm, I feel in like we're in good hands here in the state of California and, um, wish you a, a great future and thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I, I do remember that time when we first met and it was in Sacramento. It was exactly I've been to Sacramento. It was an ICPM event and it was you and Jack Deep who were doing an education session for trustees. That's right. I, that's right. I remember it well. Yeah. There may or may not have been karaoke later, but that's another story. <laughs> You heard it here first, guys. <laughs> There's the news for the day. Karaoke <laughs> occurred. Thank you. Thank you, Marcy. Thank you, Marcy. Appreciate it. So Marcy's one of my favorite people. And, it, you know, obviously we knew we were going to call Marcy. That was a little yeah, gag we did up front. Um, but, but she's just, you know, in terms of like the ability to manage staff and the board, like you can tell she's just so sharp. Yeah. And, um, and so it's just really fun to hear her talk. I mean, uh, and, and she would have to be to too. Like, it's yeah. I mean, there's so many times during that conversation where you and I were just kind of like making like excited faces at each other in the video. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and like just imagining the job that she has, where she's like, you know, kind of in a, in a way the ultimate punching bag um, oh, for yeah. folks who would who would care to make you know some sort of incendiary comment about pensions. Um, you know, or that's and, her job. Know, just, yeah, her job like, is to take the punch and keep going and and protect the staff protect Ben, protect the yep. other deputy CIOs to get on with the job of making 7% a year. And she does it with grace. And, and, you know, she, she's got thick skin, obviously she's been doing it for 35 years and she came out of politics and, and she's also been the chair of a board. Washington state investment board is an incredible organization. So I think coming from that chair slot into the CEO role also gives her a level of insight into the challenges boards face. 
Yeah. So maybe she can come with a bit more empathy than like the typical CEO that used to be a CIO. Um, so yeah, that was fun. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, me too. Um, but you know, with all the enjoyment in the world, it is time for dear, the dear Ashby segment of, uh, yeah. And that, that horn isn't just a great jam. Uh, it signifies the beginning of this segment where we take listener questions. If you are listening to this and you would like us to answer your question in this segment, please send an email to freemoneypod at gmail.com. And one more taking care of business announcement before we get into this. Um, the Free Money Podcast has partnered with Columbia University's uh, Earth Institute um, and Beyond Alpha Research to uh, do a uh, quick survey of institutional investors about how they're viewing the sustainable investment goals. Um, so if participating in that is of interest to you, it'll be totally confidential. Uh, you know, the work is conducted by a friend of the show, Mirtha Castropelli, formerly uh, managing director at State Street, um, very sharp person. Uh, and, you know, there will be a form in the, on the um, podcast website, freemoney.substack.com, um, if you're interested in, in having that chat. Is that enough announcements though, Ashby? What do you think? You ready for a question? Well, I love it. Let me just say, like, help us help you, you know, that's, yeah. that's the help me to help you help me to help you kind of vibe. Like we're here to, we do research and we do research to help people. And so if this survey will help do research about, you know, sustainability and investing, come get involved. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like the, so much, these conversations need to be had. Um, and, and speaking of sustainability and investing, this first question is fabulous and right Wonderful. on point for that. Um, <laughs> So uh, uh, a, a leaked. Uh, so apparently uh, this week, a uh, British petroleum, um, you know, known for being beyond petroleum, um, had some some of their branding documents leak, um, mm. and they uh, made headlines for like. Apparently, their goal is to be more like Greta Thunberg. Um, you know, mm. so uh, you know, the, the how? question: <laughs> How can BP be more like Greta Thunberg? <laughs> <laughs> like. That one is a, that's a stumper. I mean, I'm guessing that question was asked with not a lot, uh, written after, but, um, <laughs> if it, if it comes to like, I mean, I, I've been thinking about this a little bit because, um, I don't understand what they were going for there. If it's, uh, like wanting to be a climate influencer, which is, I think the definition of what Greta really is, they are a climate influencer. They're just influencing it the wrong way. So you know, they're, they're making that whole climate change thing happen faster. Yeah. Um, but I, I honestly, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> you know, so they'd have a better chance of being beyond meat than uh, Thunberg. Uh, I, I just, I would love to be in the room when whatever marketing consultant like brings it. It's like, so what we want to be, I mean, every branding, uh, yeah. show is like, you know, you could be like Apple, you could be like, <laughs> yeah. And anyway, <laughs> Yeah, I know. It's like some some marketing consultant was just trying to get, have a moment, you know, in the, board, <laughs> in the boardroom. We think we could be like Greta. Yeah, exactly. It's like all right, all we have to do is stop everything that we're doing, and uh, you know, even exactly. even including our business travel. Um, all right, uh, next question. Um, private equity funds are often proud to mention that their investors include police pension funds. Um, after, you know, kind of the protests and demonstrations the last couple of weeks and the violence, um, should we expect that to change in the future? Mm. It's, it is, that question is, is a really interesting one for me because the, uh, the subtext, if you will, is that the police are the bad guys 
and the private equity are, are just people who have used the bad guys in order to market. And, <laughs> and, in, and in my world, the private equity is the, the private equity guys are the bad guys. You know, whenever I, you know, whenever I walk into a private equity fund and you'd be surprised how often this happens and they have like photos of firemen and teachers and police officers on the wall. Like I can literally can't help myself from thinking those are the people you're robbing. Right. Like that's <laughs> and um, so the answer to your question, I don't know how to answer your question, Sam, but I do know that um, one of my favorite academics, uh, Ludo Philippou, he just put out a paper. I think it is today um, about how undeserved the billionaire factory that is private equity has become. And if you look at the performance since 2006, and the compensation that has been captured by this small community of people on Wall Street at the expense of firemen, teachers, policemen, um, it's ridiculous. You know, it's the, it, the fee structure in the big private equity funds is the greatest kind of free option for general partners in the history of time. And, yeah. and so I understand the person asking the question is like, cops are bad, private equity, you know, are they going to have cops in their lobbies anymore? Yeah. And my answer to that is, I don't care because I already think private equity is the bad guy. It's, it's, yeah, it's like, you think cops are bad, boy, wait till you hear wait private equity. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think you're, you're missing the point here with the cops. There's a lot of good cops. There's no good private equity. <laughs> just joking, oh, just joking. Don't, I don't actually oh, think that. Oh, man, we're going to have a backlash against the Free Money Podcast. And the, like, the oh, I don't think the private equity people made it this far into the podcast. Just joking. We're already banned from the Hamptons altogether. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So our last question uh, for this week is: What adjective describes your uh, preferred for form of capitalism? Hmm. Like you know, what's yours? You know, what's yours, Sloan? What is your adjective? So it depends on like who, like when I'm explaining what I do for a living, which is like notoriously hard to do. Mm. Um, I say I'm involved in in Subaru capitalism. Oh. Uh, you know, which is like when, uh, I mean, it's sort of a, like, we all go to the co-op and like care yeah. about the environment, but basic capitalist mechanisms remain in place. Um, you know, so like, I, I like find that. that useful. Um, I think at the spiritual level, um, Camus capitalism is probably where I'm at as where like mm. life is meaningless <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> we might as well have as much fun as possible, uh, to, you know, uh, all right. That helps. Of our time. That helps. I like, I often use this term, uh, sustainable. I know it's not flashy, but it, it kind of imparts this notion that like the growth that you're generating today shouldn't destroy the future. So that's the first thing. So feel free to make capitalism free market. Just don't destroy my future. Um, and the other thing about that word sustainable is it's like, it can be defended. Like that's one of the definitions upheld or defended, like sustained in a courtroom. Yep. You know, <laughs> sustained, Your Honor, um, Counselor. You know, I want I want to like walk around and be like, look, capitalism isn't that bad because in my mind, capitalism is a great engine of freedom and you know the rising of boats and all these things. It's just the form of capitalism that I feel like we're pursuing today that is, you know, yeah. um, crony capitalism, crap, capitalism, crap, whatever it is. Yeah, like you know. For all the reasons we've heard on the last few episodes, it's a, it's a fairly crappy form of capitalism, and and it's partly why we want to empower these long term investors to 
help usher in an era of sustainable capitalism. So yeah, that's my word. I'll yeah, stick to I love, it. I love that. Defensible capitalism, basically, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, like, like don't tear everything down to get rich today. That's the first yep. kind of version. And the second one is that we can like held our heads high and defend it when people come to us and say, we should be communists. Like, I'm yeah. annoyed that we even have to have that conversation. Like, communism, you know, you're going to lose your rights to do whatever the hell you want to do. Yeah. Yeah, if we, if we hadn't been, like, you know, if certain, equi- you know, Merverick Mer- 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 firms hadn't been making all sorts of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These private equity guys. Merverick <laughs> trickery. Billionaire factories. Oh, man. Well, that about does it for us this week, guys. Um, mm. Do we love them? I think we love them. We love them. them. We do. do you, if we if you're listening, if they, you made, love us if they made it this far, we love them yeah. big time. That was a long one. That's true. Um, but if you're listening and you love us back, please leave us a uh, a review on your favorite podcast factory or application or, or website. Um, that would be a really nice thing. Um, yeah. But yeah. Bye. Bye. I'm Make it rain on them.